Welcome to another episode of Not Related, an episode you may have not heard before, uh, because this episode, I'm recording this audio right here on January 20th, 2020, but this episode I actually recorded a long, long time ago in a live stream. I know only some of you guys saw it, and I'm sure there are others who would have enjoyed to hear it, but I never actually uploaded it to Libsyn. Um, so I'm doing that now. It's been forever, and I will say the reason I'm doing it is because I'm thinking about bringing back the podcast. So get ready for that. There, I'm, I got a stack of books right here. You can't see it, but a stack of books that I thinking, I'm thinking about doing some episodes on because I keep hearing... Well, anyway, I'll, I'll do another episode talking about what I want to do in the podcast. L- I'll just let you get into this. It's going to be me talking through the whole thing, me of a couple months ago. Anyway, I should say at the very end, the audio started to mess up. So it's going to have an anticlimactic end. I'll just say what I was going to say once we get there. Uh, But anyway, enjoy it. This is one that's actually very important for those of you who are in academia or at least read statistical papers or not even statistical papers, but papers that use statistics because it goes into the fact that nearly the methodology of statistics, the way that it is used in academia is totally off base. Anyway, I won't spoil it. This one's a slow burn episode, but it's probably one of the more uh, important ones. Anyway, I'll I'll talk to you guys later. See you next time. There is a specter haunting the world. The specter of null hypothesis statistical testing. Welcome, everyone, to a long-awaited episode of Not Related. It's been a couple months since I actually did one of these, but this episode, we're going to talk about something that um, I, I think is one of those things. I say this nearly every episode, but it goes unmentioned too often. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about how nearly the entire procedure for using statistics in academia in many different subjects is in fact massively off the mark, uh, totally uh, different than what it should be based on misunderstandings. We'll also talk about Ronald Fisher as he tries to solve the problem of induction in philosophy and where academic folklore comes from. That is, where is it that academics occasionally acquire cargo cult-like characteristics in their behavior? And, of course, we'll address other things like the replication crisis and uh, why most published academic papers are false. We'll talk about that famous article back from 2005, I think it was. But anyway, uh, I'll go ahead and give you the summary of the entire topic today. But at first, I want to make some administrative notes. Again, this is not related live. There will be an audio edition that's going to come out. You might be listening to it already. But if you're in the chat room live, you can donate your comments, you know, at the link that's on the video that you, uh, and I will read related comments in the midsection, uh, similar to previous episodes. You can also make irrelevant comments, and I will answer those at the end of the stream, and then we'll do a typical live stream kind of thing after that. And so I'm usually, I'm going to plan, again, as usually, uh, a not related episode is usually 30 minutes of me talking, then a break where I read questions, then 30 more minutes. But this time, we'll have a video live stream that's just going to have happen at the very end. But Anyway, so when I said null hypothesis statistical testing, that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. What do I mean by that? Now, you may know exactly what I mean. You may not. Either way, I'll explain it in time. But it's one of those areas that's gone severely misunderstood and is almost a cult-like, it's almost like a compulsion in a lot of different fields. So um, null hypothesis 
significance testing, or as we'll probably call it in this episode, the null ritual. We'll talk about why it's called that, but that's Gerd Gigerenzer's term from it. Um, A couple episodes ago in Not Related, you may know that we talked about uh, this book here, that is Rationality for Mortals. Um, And he has a very excellent... um, you know, it talk, talks, of course, about various topics. Every chapter is actually really good. We talked about one of those, um, you know, th- on that episode. Um, but one of the topics that is actually really incisive that he talks about later on is, in fact, what he calls the null ritual. That is what we're going to be discussing in this episode. Um, so anyway, before we get into it, I'm going to double check the audio just because everyone always complains about it, just because it always messes up on the stream. But you'll notice I actually have two mics down here. This one is going to be recording for the podcast and this one for the stream. But I just want to double check, actually. Okay, it looks good. It looks good. Anyway, so what is the null ritual? Uh, Well, let's put it this way. So there is a statistical procedure that is used in basically every peer-reviewed science and soft science. It's used in medicine. It's used in some hard sciences like physics or something like that occasionally. It's used in econometrics. It's used in psychology, neuroscience, genetics. We use it in linguistics. And even nowadays, empirical studies into history, sociology use this kind of procedure. Every clickbait article you've read about some scientific study probably uses this procedure as, you know, just the default way of analyzing data. And it's what you learn in when you go to graduate school or sometimes when you're an undergraduate it's what you're taught to do all the time and it is totally devoid of meaning it has really no scientific basics behind it in fact it's built as gigarenzer notes in this book which originally is based on a 2004 article called mindless statistics actually let me pull it up for those of you who are watching the video feed um uh, it is based on a misunderstanding of two different statistical procedures that have Important philosophical, uh, I guess, purposes by themselves, but together they don't make any sense. And that is on one side, uh, we'll talk about Ronald Fisher's uh, method for analyzing, uh, for basically getting p-values and making uh, statistical judgments in order to solve the philosophical problem of induction. And on the other hand, we'll talk about the Neyman and Pearson procedure, which is really uh, basically a real-life procedure for making decisions when things are risky or when things there is induction that we have to make. All right. So I'm, I'm not speaking specifically enough. I'm going to go into what, first off, what is the null ritual when Giga Renzer talks about it? Let's actually scroll down, and I will read it for you, those of you who are in the audio episode. That is, here's what the null ritual is. And if you don't know anything about statistics... This might sound like a bunch of gobbledygook, but I'll I'll explain it in a second. Um, So the null ritual is three steps here. Set up a statistical null hypothesis of no mean difference or zero correlation. Don't specify the predictions of your research hypothesis or any alternative substantive hypothesis. Number two, use use 5% as a convention for rejecting the null. If significant, accept your research hypothesis. Report the result as P is less than 0.05, P is less than 0.01, or et cetera, et cetera. Whenever it comes, uh, whatever comes next to the obtained P value. And number three is always perform this procedure. So what does this actually actually mean? I'll, let me give you a real life example of it. So the null ritual likes, works like this. Let's say I want to, let's say I have a hypothesis that men are taller than women. Okay, that sounds like a pretty 
understandable hypothesis. What you do in this concept or in this procedure is first you create a null hypothesis. Now in this context, what that means is a null hypothesis would be the hypothesis that men and women are the same height. So uh, it basically means there's no difference between whatever you're analyzing. On the other hand, the opposite of that is an alternative hypothesis, and that would be the idea that there is a difference between men and women in height. So one weird thing to note off first is if you want to test if men are taller than women, the convention in the field would actually be statistically testing whether uh, men and women are statistically different in height. So theoretically, your hypothesis in this context would actually be proven if women were significantly taller than men unless you know what you're doing. But I'll just say, typically in the, null in the null ritual, that isn't done. So once you've set up these hypotheses, you use, basically what you do is you calculate what's called a p-value. Now, what is a p-value? A p-value is one of the most misunderstood statistical concepts, even by people who are literally writing textbooks on it, but it's not very difficult to understand. Now, in our example of comparing the heights of men and women, let's say I calculate through some kind of statistical test. I'm not going to go go into all the different statistical tests, but let's say you get a p-value of 0 0.05, which is basically the equivalent of 5%. What that means is in the alternate universe where men and women have the same average height, that means that there is a 5% chance of you getting data taking from that universe that is at least as extreme of, as what you actually got. So what I mean by that is in the real world, if I go out there and measure the heights of men and women, and then I run a test to get a p-value, what that means is I'm probably gonna get a p-value that's really low because men, of course, if we're talking about adults, men are usually a good bit taller than women and that's gonna show up in statistics. So I'm gonna get a really low p-value. And what that means is if I'm in the alternate universe, where men and women are the same height, there is that really small chance of me getting data that's the same or more extreme in that case, okay? So that's what a p-value means. Now that should make sense, but the weird thing about the null ritual is that there's these sort of cultic, there's almost like a, a, a relig religious terminology between some certain words. Now what you do is you have a level of, a level for wi at which you either reject or accept your hypothesis or reject the null hypothesis. And that is, uh, it's a convention in social sciences to use 0.05. So if you get a p-value less than 0.05, you say in your paper that you rejected the null hypothesis and therefore accepted your alternative hypothesis. And that's what you say. If you fail to do that, what you're supposed to say is you failed to reject the null or what happens in real life is you don't even publish your paper. That's what actually happens. But so that is what that's supposed to mean. Now, what does it really mean to accept something? What does it really mean to reject something? Um, it's the null ritual isn't really clear on what that is supposed to mean. We'll talk about why it does this and what it the historical reason of what this is. But uh, anyway, let's just say it you're just when you learn statistics in graduate school or in a statistics class, you are simply taught this procedure and that's pretty much it, and you just have to run with it. If you wanna get um, uh, published, you have to do it. And when you are lower than that 0 0.05, that is called statistical significance. Now, statistical significance might as well have a registered trademark on it, because in the null ritual, that is almost, that is 
a term of religious devotion, almost. Um, if something is 0.05, that is, if it's not less than 0.05, it is not significant. You can't describe it with that words. If it is, you know, 0.04999999, whatever, with, um, that is significant. That is the difference. And that is a, an official term in the null ritual. So that's have to give, you have to that's something you have to keep in mind, and additionally, this is a binary thing. So statistical significance sig significance is either it is or it isn't. It's binary. Okay. Now the other weird thing that Gigerenzer notes there is that weirdly enough, you don't always even report your p-value. Now your p-value, in some sense, is telling you about the world. It's telling you about the likeliness of you know your null hypothesis, like how much your data, how likely your data would be given the null hypothesis. So you're you're learning something about the world by having it, but it's often the case that you don't even report the p-value, even though you think that would be something important. You instead often just say it is less than this level, okay? And again, this level, which is usually 0.05 in the social sciences, that is really just a convention. There's nothing behind it. You don't have a say in that. It just happens. So, um, so again, there are some weird things about this. First off, if you, you're really testing whether there is no difference between two, two groups. So if our hypothesis is that men are taller than women, um, a lot of times, if you're, unless you really know what you're doing, which few people in academic statistics often do, frankly, and I'm not saying that at a condescension, but um, a lot of times people will not know how to specify specifically boys being greater than girls or higher than girls, uh, as opposed to there just being difference. Usually what happens is the null hypothesis is there's no difference in height, and the alternative hypothesis is there is difference in height either way, okay? Second off, again, you don't just report the p-value. You have this sort of weird ritual where you say it's greater or less than this, this amount that's sort of socially accepted. You report if it is greater or less than, but you don't necessarily even report the p. In fact, some scientific journals don't want you to report the p-value. Um, and again, what, what is accepting and rejecting actually really supposed to mean? Uh, so let's go into this. So the real, now Gigerenzer, of course, talks in this article about the null ritual, but his argument is that it is based on a misunderstanding of two different statistical theories that were common in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Actually, I shouldn't even say common. They were discussed, but they were often misunderstood. And we'll talk about how when they were written down into statistics test textbooks, they were done so in a sort of deceptive, not a deceptive way, but a confused way that confused a lot of people and has really caused all these different fields to adopt this sort of weird arbitrary procedure. Okay, now the two strands of it, the two, again, it's a hybrid procedure between two contradictory procedures. On one side, there is Ronald Fisher, and on the other side, there is Yerzy Neyman and E.S. Pearson. And we'll talk about Neyman and Pearson in a second. Let's talk about Ronald Fisher first. So Fisher was an evolutionary biologist by trade, if you call that a trade. Um, but he is very important in the formulation of the modern synthesis of, you know, contemporary evolutionary theory. Um, and he also pioneered a lot of statistics. He did a lot of statistics work. And uh, really, he's honestly thought of as sort of the father of modern statistics. He invented analysis of variance and a whole bunch of other things. So to explain his theory, you first have to explain his motivation. And that is, he is interested in a very particular scientific problem. And that is solving the problem of induction. 
So if you know anything about, I guess, the history of Western philosophy, there's this classic problem of induction. And what's that supposed to mean? So there are two kinds of reasoning that people usually talk about, deduction and induction. Now, deduction, uh, let's give an, the most common example of deduction is um, premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. And then your conclusion is, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Okay, so deduction is working from premises to an inevitable conclusion. I guess pretty much everyone understands dedu deduction is supposed to be, so long as your premises are true, um, your conclusion is going to be 100% foolproof, provided you haven't looked over anything. Induction is different than that. So let's say one common induction problem is, you know, let's say that... Um, uh, we want to know if the sun is going to, you know, rise tomorrow, okay? Induction, an inductive argument would be something like, well, the sun rose today, the sun rose the day before, the sun rose the day before, um, therefore the sun is going to rise tomorrow. It just seems sensible that it's going to do that. Now, that's not a 100% knockdown argument, but there is a sense in which, which the premises seem to give more credence to the conclusion, now, I, I'm, of course, skirting over a whole bunch of stuff, but in general, that is the difference between deduction and induction. So, um, induction is not 100% airtight, so people have constantly, it's called the problem of induction. How do you actually really make induction a first-class citizen in the same way deduction is? So, Ronald Fisher, uh, again, his goal, his goal is really to solve this problem, or at least move towards solving it with statistics. So here, here he makes up his own theory, and I'll explain. It's similar to the null, hypo the null ritual, but important, or importantly different. Um, but it has a particular motivation. That is, his goal is um, he wants to calculate p-values. And again, what, it, what is a p-value? As I said a couple of min minutes ago, a p-value is the chance in the alternate world, or possibly this world, where there is no effect caused by something, it is the chance of you getting data like the data you got, okay? So Fisher said, well, we can, what we can do is we can actually calculate, we can set up a null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis for Fisher actually has nothing to do with there being no, no effect. It just means some hypothesis that you really don't think is true or you want to nullify. Um, so you set up a hypothesis, then you just get, a, uh, get data, and then you get your p, p uh, values. And then you're done. You can report your p-value if you're writing some kind of paper, but um, to solve the problem of induction, Fisher basically puts it this way. What you can say is, you know, let's say in the case of, um, you know, the sun rising every day, let's say you invented a kind of statistical test that would analyze whether the sun is going to rise today based on previous risings, okay? Uh, Fisher's idea is, Instead of saying, instead of having a knockdown or not knockdown argument for why it has to raise tomorrow, you can say something like this: Either, you, well, you run your statistical test and you get your p-value, and then you say either the sun is going to rise tomorrow, or in my statistical analysis, an event of p-likeliness has occurred. And why that's important is that you can take that disjunct, you can take that logical disjunct and work it into some kind of deduction, logical deduction, um, where you're, Fisher, as far as he's concerned, he's promoted induction to the level of deduction because you can now say, okay, um, 
I have proven, and really in a sense, I, I guess if you take his the statistics of it seriously, uh, he, he has proven that um, an event is true or some unlikely event has occurred. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to make sure, and that's all this calculation of p-values, that's what it's for. Because either the sun is going to raise or the data is so unlikely. Okay. Now, there are a couple things to say here. First off, this sort of, uh, the specific example I gave of the sun raising, uh, that's sort of base, that sort of implies that there's, there's some, some kind of normal distribution in how suns raise. You may be familiar, nowadays they call it the turkey problem. I think that it might be a coinage by Nassim Taleb, um, but it's basically the idea, um, you know, if you're a turkey, let's say you have a theory about the world. The theory is farmers love turkeys. They love them so much that every day they come out and feed me and I get fatter and fatter and they take care of me and they care about me so much. My theory, every single day when the farmer comes out and feeds me, I have more and more statistical likelihood. My inductive reasoning gets better and better, um, asserting that farmers just love turkeys. Now, eventually that turkey is gonna be, his head's gonna come off and he's gonna be served as a Thanksgiving meal. That's the turkey problem. So there are some domains where this kind of induction doesn't work. Just bear in mind, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not really germane. We can, that's a whole nother episode if you want to talk about it. But uh, for Fisher's point is that in narrow domains where we have, you know, we're just trying to figure things out and we don't think there's going to be some thick tailed phenomena. Uh, it's okay to, you can really just have a P value and have some kind of deduction and that and integrate that into a deductive reasoning uh, derivation, so to speak. And that's pretty much what you need. So anyway, that, that's Fisher's goal. So you can see where it comes from. That is, Fisher wants to uh, promote induction to being more real, okay? Uh, where at Neyman and Pearson, who we'll talk about in just a second, their goal is totally different, all right? Uh, and you're going to see, but you can already see how parts of the null ritual have arisen you have this p-value, you have what's called a null hypothesis, even though they're slightly different, but anyway. So um, just to be clear about the differences, again, in the null ritual, um, there is a thing called an alternative hypothesis. There's nothing in Fisher's account like that. There, implicitly, there is something different from the null, but he only talks about the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis doesn't mean no effect to Fisher's original theory. It just means the thing you're trying to annul, the thing you're trying... Uh, trying to disprove. Now, additionally, Fisher, since he's only interested in logical derivations and things like that, he's not particularly interested in um, if we're getting, you know, uh, the replicability or if uh, the the field is getting a uh, representative sample of all the theories going or all the p-values out there. So, Really, all he's interested in is a logical derivation. So he, if you get a bad p-value, if you get a really high p-value, Fisher doesn't care. Don't report it. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so there's that as well. But additionally, there is no accepting or rejecting hypotheses. And that's important in Fisher's original theory. You don't really accept a hypothesis or reject it. You just say, here's the p-value for it. And we can work it into a logical derivation. I'm going to take a drink. So that's the big difference. Um, now, let's go ahead and get into Neyman and Pearson's theory because it's different than Fisher. And again, it combines to create the misunderstood null ritual that we have today. Okay, so Neyman, wasn't, Neyman and Pearson weren't interested in induction at all. 
They don't care about it. Doesn't doesn't matter at all. Um, in fact, they were sort of of the stripe of. In the early 20th century, of course, you may know there was this movement towards a, a kind of positivism where people had a very rigid divide between what is proper science and what isn't science. And Neyman, it was sort of like this, and he thought that induction wasn't real. Um, so he thought that, and in fact, he didn't even use the term inductive reasoning or inductive logic. In fact, he referred to it as inductive behavior because he didn't really think it could be made science. Fisher was trying to make it into something deductive and something sciency. He thought it was totally worthless. What he was interested in, him and Pearson, is making good decisions given inductive information. How can we make good inductive decisions? So, so they created a decision procedure. It's not really even a statistical procedure. It's a decision procedure for trying to choose between different hypotheses. And not because you care about the science of it, but because you want to make a decision. So um, just to give it an example, uh, let's say, you know, one, here's the kind of example they would usually deal with. Let's say you have a pharmaceutical company. Um, let's say you manufacture some kind of medicine. And in that production procedure, there's a chance that you might get a trace amount of arsenic or some kind of heavy metal that's not uh, safe for human consumption. Let's say there's, you have reason to believe there's a chance of that. They want to be able to sample your product and then be able to guess if uh, there is a dangerous amount of, uh, you know, arsenic or something else in it. So it's sort of like quality control. That's really what their theory is about. And in order to even make sense of their, their model, you have to understand a whole lot of things about what is going on. So just to be clear, I'm not going to give you a full view. Now, I didn't talk about how you calculate a p-value when I talked about Fisher. And I'm also not going to talk about the rigid... Uh, you know, this is an audio episode, so we're not going to go into every um, detail. But Neyman and Pearson's theory, if you want to learn about how to specifically do everything, you need to look it up. Same thing for calculating p-values. Refer to the original literature. I'll put it in the video description once uh, the stream is done. Um, but j let me give you an idea of what they're trying to do. So here, here's the idea. You know, if you're doing quality control, there are two types of error you can make. Um, there's what's called type 1 error, and type 1 error are the errors you really, really want to avoid. And in this case, let's say, again, you have pharmaceuticals. That would be if you have arsenic in some kind of pharmaceuticals, and it's, you know, way too much for human consumption, and people die. And you want to avoid that at all cost. Now, then there's type 2 errors. And type 2 errors is basically if you, uh, you're more, you make a decision based on the more risky choice, and it's not, it's an error. So in that case, it would be, let's say you run some tests and there's more arsenic in, there appears to be ar uh, way too much arsenic in your medicine, but it's actually just a sampling error. You've made a, a statistical mistake. That's a type 2 error. And when you see that, you might throw out all this shipment or something and start over because you think it's dangerous. That is a costly error, but it's a less costly error. So... Neyman and Pearson have an entire format where the first thing you do if you want to make a decision is you first off have to make clear how costly your errors are. So if, you, if you're type 1 errors, so there's alpha and beta in their theories. So alpha is the, basically what your, your long-term chance of getting a type 1 error. And so you want to set that really, really low. And what that means is 
the the basically the more sensitive your model your decision will be to having arsenic in your medicine that's basically what it is so the smaller that is it's better and that is it makes you more hyper reactive to things that are dangerous or on the other side beta is really your long-term risk of type 2 errors and you set these based on your cost-benefit analysis before you even begin your statistics. For Damon and Pearson, it's not just you run, you find a p-value and you run with it, like Fisher's. It's much more complicated. It involves taking the costs and the benefits and going with that. Now, again, I'm not going to go into the specifics of it, but just know that how you, you, want, you want to come into it with your sample size, with you know, what kind of number of people you're looking at, and your alpha and beta values. So once you decide all of that, the Neyman and Pearson procedure will give you which hypothesis you should accept or reject. And once that happens, you uh, exception or accepting or rejecting something doesn't mean it's nothing philosophical. It's nothing like you haven't learned something about the universe. It's you are now going to make a decision based on you know, your inputs to the model. So if the model says, okay, well, do this thing because you have adjusted the uh, risks to this level, then you do it. So, uh, so you either reject, if you're taking care of your pharmaceuticals, if you're trying to see, see if they're up, up to snuff, um, if you get one option, you get rid of them. If you get the other, you don't, okay? So anyway, that, that's how their theory is constructed. And it's much more complicated um, again, the, it's honestly hard to find. Um, you can, of course, all again, I'll provide you the articles that will go over Neyman and Pearson's theory. Uh, but just a couple of differences that they have between Fisher and the null hypothesis, the null ritual. First off, um, they want you to, their procedure is basically taking two theories about whatever you're analyzing. So let's say there's a dangerous amount of arsenic versus there isn't. They're not necessarily the same thing as a null and alternative hypothesis in a null ritual, in the null ritual. But they're sometimes called both alternative hypotheses. hypotheses. Uh, that's what Gigerenzer refers to them as. Uh, although in the literature, it's a little varied. Um, uh, I know in one of the other sources, I think I put up the uh, Perez-Gonzalez article, uh, they refer to the one that's more risky as the main, or the one, yeah, you don't want to reject as the main hypothesis and the other as the alternative um, but just know that the, the terminology out there is a little, little confusing. But note the difference, again, they don't really care about p-values um, in the same way that Fisher does. That's not what they're interested in. Um, they don't have a null hypothesis or something like that. And they don't really care about induction. And they don't, although they accept and reject hypotheses like the null ritual, it is because that means behavior. It is nothing epistemological. If It's nothing scientific. So anyway, so I think it's about time for a break. So I'm going to take a, a couple minutes of a break. I'm going to read donations if there are any, and I'll talk about the ones that are relevant. And then I'll come back and we'll talk about more the differences and why they're important between Fisher and, um, and uh, Neyman Pearson, but also how it has become misunderstood and how dangerous that is in academia. So I'm going to briefly turn off my mic and webcam, and uh, I'll, I'm just going to read some donations and then come right back. So I will see you guys in one second. Um, the problem here is that um, I have so many donations from previous episodes because it's been so long. So I'm going to read a couple. I'm not necessarily going to read individual ones, but I want to talk about some specific things that people have asked about. So a couple things. Um, 
One, this was a comment, I think it was from, <clears throat> it was from someone on, well, I got an email about it, and it was on uh, BitChute, I think. Uh, someone was talking about, we, we were talking about how uh, one weird thing about Native American genetics is that there is a substrate of people who are similar to the inhabitants of Australia. This was on the multi-regionalism episode, if you missed that. Um, and someone said, well, some people have mentioned that there's a possibility that Polynesians colonized South America or something like that. So and that is true. If you don't know this, in fact, um, we actually have good evidence that Polynesians did make it to South America at some point. In fact, of course, you know, they get to Easter Island, which is 99% of the way there. Um, but it's also pretty clear that they did make it to the Americas at some point. And we know that because they actually have uh, sweet potatoes. They cultivated sweet potatoes and those are all over the place. But that isn't an answer to the genetic question. Um, because Polynesians are not the same people as the native inhabitants of, you know, uh, the Aust of Australia and the sort of substrate people uh, there. You know, colloquially, or I guess even superficially, remember Polynesian people, they look sort of like Asians. They're a little bulky. You know, they, they're uh, very different from the, uh, the sort of Negrito type of people that we're actually talking about. It's really that there's a genetic substrate of Australian like, not, not exactly Australian, but like these people in some parts of America. So again, there are many different theories for why this is. It could just be that there is some ingression historically of some really small group uh, over the Bering Strait. It could be that uh, Aboriginal Australians were once a seafaring civilization. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but, you know, at the scale of time, you never know. Uh, so that that's one thing about it. Um, so most of the comments that I have gotten, donations related to not related, uh, have literally just been people asking me to do another episode. Um, so I, I think I'm actually going, I'm looking at my donation sheet and it uh, it's around 100 lines long. So I might just have to do a separate video on that. Um, I think there was one donation a second ago. Oh yeah, a buck from Bastiat. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think there have been any others here. I decided to schedule this stream at the absolute worst time, 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. Uh, so anyway, it's really because I wanted to do audio editing afterwards and because I had free time. Um, so if you have any meme donations, feel free to give those and I will talk about them around, uh, once the 30 minutes are over. I'm going to briefly scan the chat. I haven't had the chat open, um, but I will just check. I don't know if anyone said anything that substantial. Most of it's probably just meme responses. <laughs> All right, so I'll, I'll probably get back into it. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk about, so we've talked about the two different theories. We've gone through the, the sort of, we've waded through the analytical, analytical portion of the podcast. Um, but what are the ramifications of this? Now, this sounds like a little autistic uh, nitpick. Okay, so there are two statistical theories we don't really understand them that well. well. What's the import of that? How does that actually matter um, for, I guess, statistics? Why is that a big problem? Now, before we talk about that, uh, just talk about some, it's important to note the, sh the sheer confusion of a lot of academics when they do statistics. Now, first off, statistics is, of course, a specialized discipline, but it, 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 a lot of people in different, different disciplines have to know at least a little bit about it. So there's a big asymmetry. There's often, you know, as Gigerenzer notes, you know, in his original 2004 article, there's a tendency for people to, I guess, create rituals about things that they don't really know about. 
Okay. Now here, let me actually open this up for a couple uh, examples here. So one is, uh, Gig this again is Gigerenzer 2004, and again, it's also in Rationality for Mortals. Um, he notes in these studies, there was actually a sort of yes-no response to a couple true-false statements about, um, well, actually, I'll just read this out for you. Suppose you have a treatment that you suspect may alter performance on a certain task. You, uh, you compare the means of your control and experimental groups, say 20 subjects in each sample. Further, you suppose, uh, suppose you use a simple independent means t-test and your result is significant. t equals 2.7, df equals 18, and p is 0 0.01. Please mark each of the statements below as true or false. False means that the statement does not follow logically from the above premises. Also note that several or none of the statements may be correct. So this is, I think, was given to a bunch of academics, graduate students. Actually, you can see the results, I think, a little further down here. Um, but the six statements are as follows. Again, remember what p-values actually mean. Okay, so a p-value, in the case of, again, if we're trying to determine, if we're trying to, if our hypothesis is men and women, men are taller than women, the p-value is the chance in a world where men and women are, on average, the same height, the chance that we would get the results we got. So the first one is, uh, the first true or false is, you have absolutely disproved the null hypothesis. That is, there's no difference between population means. True or false. Number two, you found the probability of the null hypothesis being true. True or false. Three, you have absolutely proved your experimental hypothesis that there's a difference between the population means. True or false. Four, you can deduce the probability of the experiment hypothesis being true, true or false. You know, or five, you know if you decide to reject the null hypothesis, the probability that you are making, the probability that you are making the wrong decision, true or false. And the last one, six, you have a reliable experimental finding in the sense that hypothetically, uh, if the experiment were repeated a great number of times, you would obtain a significant result on 99% of all, all occasions. So which ones are true, which ones are false? Now, based on what I said, again, the p-value, all that is, is the chance of you getting this data in the world where there's no difference between your populations. And all of these statements are false. They're all false. And all of them overshoot the value of what a p-value, what a result of one of these tests is supposed to be. So let's see the results for what people actually put for that. So this is the percentage of people who missed at least one of them. Okay, every psychology student missed at least one. 90% of uh, professors, lecturers not te teaching statistics missed one. And only 20% of statistics teachers and lecturers got them all right. Only 20%. And I think if you have internalized what even what we've said in this particular uh, uh, live stream or episode, hopefully you would not have said true to any of those. Um, because that's patently not what any of this statistical testing is doing. But still, there are 20%, uh, only 20% of statistics lecturers actually, you know, basically got everything right. So, um, so th that's one thing. And a lot of this comes from, well, actually, I should open the same article. On page 11 here, oh, maybe I should actually. So on page 11 here, he actually is quoting from a common uh, textbook here. And again, Gigerenzer's argument is that pretty much every this the null hype, the the null ritual this misunderstanding of statistics came from a misuse uh, or a really a confused communication of statistical ideas in textbooks 
So here, for example, for instance, uh, I'm reading from GigaRenser here, for instance, within the three pages of text uh, in Nunnally uh, uh, 1975, used all the following statements to explain what a significant result such as 5% actually means. Uh, they describe it, again, all these different things. One, the probability of an observed difference being real, the improbability of, an, of observed results being due to error, the statistical confidence with 95 out of 100 that the observed difference will hold up in investigations, the, another one, the danger of accept all of these kind of things, either of these are pretty much meaningless or they're just wrong. Uh, and of course, the worst one is all of these are different ways of saying the same thing. So that is not what a test, you know, a significant result uh, at 5%. That's not what that actually means. But these min misunderstandings are so ubiquitous. And this is just p-values. This is aside from the null ritual itself. But because the null ritual is so, I guess, ad hocly understood, there's a tendency for people to kind of, uh, you know, totally misunderstand what it's actually about. Okay. So another thing about this is that a lot of, and Gigerenzer notes this, and I noted it earlier in the episode, but there's a kind of black boxing approach to a lot of statistics in academia. That is, everything is highly formulaic. It's, it's not irregular to read published papers that don't talk about what statistical tests they use. They don't open source their data. They don't, they don't even, you basically have to email people if you want to replicate things. Um, they don't have them in an, in an appendix. Some people do that. Some people do that. Some journals require it, but it's not necessarily normal to do that. They often, again, don't even report the p-value. They report if p is greater than or less than their cutoff, their alpha, um, but they don't even report their p-value. Uh, and in fact, there are many style guides that say, do not report your p-value because again, a p-value in the null ritual is binary. If it's less than 0 0.05, then it's, okay, good, you can publish that. If it's greater than it, it doesn't matter, okay? And now in Fisher's test, which is actually where the p-value comes from, p is not binary, it's gradient. I mean, if p is really, really small and you get a small p-value, that's good, report that, celebrate it. And you can call that statistically significant. Um, if P is really big, uh, it's not statistically significant, but there's no cutoff for that. There's no kind of arbitrary ritual as for what is, you know, the thing you have to use. So anyway, so a lot of this confusion came from the 50s and 60s, where there was a debate between Fisher and Neyman and Pearson in the literature. And the thing is, neither of them actually spelled out their theories in an individual article for you to read. I'm going to provide some links in the, the podcast description, they're not in the stream description yet, um, of some of the original discussions that went between Fisher and uh, Neyman and Pearson. And none of them really spelled everything out. Uh, like both of them, they're all sort of like arguing that the, the other guy's procedure is useless or uh, obviously, as I said earlier, they have totally different motivations. Again, Fisher is trying to do, he's trying to solve the problem of induction. Naaman and Pearson are trying to provide a way to make decisions, but they're in the literature. They sort of talk past each other. And what happens is that, uh, you know, in textbooks, here's a actually pretty good source right here. This is an article by uh, Peter Halpin and Hendrika Stam. This is in 2006. 
And it's entire, well, it's entitled Inductive Inference or Inductive Behavior, Fisher and Neyman and Pearson Approaches to Statistical Testing and Psychological Research. It talks about some of the stuff that Giga Renzer was noting, but they, interestingly enough, actually go through some of these textbooks um, looking into how people have misused these different ideas. And basically in their conclusion, they, they talk individual. If you want to read this uh, and look at the individual textbooks, you can. Um, but their summary, their conclusion, is basically none of the textbooks provided a really good analysis of either of the theories. And in fact, usually what they did is they took Fisher and distorted it with some Neyman and Pearson ideas, some concepts, and passed it off as one theory. It's prob this is probably based on the fact that a lot of people just honestly didn't understand um, you know, what either of these theories were. And they had to present them in textbooks and it was just sort of sloppily presented, you know, not really talking specifically about a bunch of stuff. And it was presented as this is how we do it. This is capital S statistics for a lot of people. Now, where does the problem really get bad? Um, so now we've talked about, so now the argument so far has really been, so this null ritual exists. It exists in basically every field out there. This is like, you have to use it if you want to get published in a lot of these fields. Um, but this doesn't sound like a cataclysmic problem. I'm not saying that every paper that used this ritual is wrong, like every result is wrong. But because statistics are being used by people who don't necessarily understand why this null ritual is used or what it's supposed to be about, partially because it's not about anything, this, causes, this really perverts the incentives and perverts what people are going to do in real life, in their actual behavior when they're trying to get published. Okay, so notice a couple things about the null ritual. I mean, uh, first off, remember Neyman and Pearson, in their idea, you have two different hypotheses, and based on a cost-benefit analysis and an analysis, uh, analysis of the cost of, you know, risk, basically, you choose to do thing A or choose to do thing B, okay? This has been distorted to be accepting or rejecting the null hypothesis in the null ritual. That only has a behavioral meaning. It doesn't mean anything scientifically, okay? But that has been reinterpreted as, you know, if, you're th if we reject the null hypothesis and therefore accept your alternative hypothesis, that means this is true. That's how people often understand that intuitively. That means you can publish it in a journal. That means a whole bunch of things. Uh, where on the other side, if you excuse me, if you don't get that much, you're not going to get published. Or maybe you will. I mean, papers that have non-significant results will get published, but people don't want to publish them, usually because they found a, founding, uh, found a finding that they don't like often. Okay, so this makes things ripe for fraud because there's a cutoff after which you have to publish specific things. Okay, now this null ritual scientifically, epistemologically, doesn't have the epistemological basis of Fisher's theory, and it doesn't have the practical behavioral cost-benefit side of Neyman and Pearson. Um, it really more or less just de determines what gets published, and even before that, what's, what gets studied. Okay, um, So it biases people to make studies uh, to get kinds of results and put them in favorable lights. Now, what also is important is Neyman and Pearson, I didn't fully describe Neyman and Pearson. If you want to know all about their statistical decision theory, you should search that yourself. But let's just say that in order to even do it, you have to plan everything in advance. What the cost benefit of making decision A versus decision B is, you have to uh, really understand what kind of sample sizes are we looking at and the statistics with come, that come with those. 
But the thing about the null ritual is there's no such constraint. So here's what happens in real life, okay? Let's say I wanna do a linguistic study. I wanna study someone's uh, reaction time to a specific kind of sentence. What I would do, what, well, you don't sit down planning to do this, but this is frankly what a lot of my colleagues and a lot of other people do, not just in linguistics, but in a bunch of disciplines. What they do is they'll run a, um, you know, a, a, pioneer, a pilot study on five people or something like that. They'll get some results. They'll see what that looks like. They'll run a couple more people. They'll get a couple more students to come in and do their experiment, get some, you know, reaction time results or something like that. They'll get some more results. And you, every time someone comes in, because computers are all over the place, because you can just put your data in R and run the analysis of variance command on it, you can get your statistics instantly every time someone does your experiment. So what happens is you have this flexibility where if you were on the good side of, you know, rejecting the null hypothesis and quote unquote proving your theory, um, you can easily just stop, uh, stop doing the experiment. You can stop right there. Or if it, you think it's going to go the other way, you can keep, you, you can have a couple more people on. So you have this weird decision to either continue or not continue in experimentation. Now, anyone who is honorable or knows, I, I guess, thinks about things statistically um, will tell you when you, even when you learn statistics, that that's not a good thing to do because you're really biasing the results in your favor. Despite the fact that nearly everyone does this, um, it biases results in the particular way that you want to get them. If you're constantly checking them to see if they, they match and you're deciding when to stop getting more data. Okay. And a lot of times nowadays, you know, I have known people who did studies with like N equals three, right? Meaning there are only three people or something like that. Uh, actually when I was an undergraduate and I didn't know anything, I did an N equals 15 study, which I still feel extremely guilty about, but you know, whatever. Uh, I was on only, only an undergraduate, didn't even plan to publish it. But frankly, a lot of stuff like that does get published. Um, but because I, I think a lot of people don't understand the, the statistical power needed. Um, anyway, so there's a conjecture. One, in addition to, you know, this flexibility in experimentation, there's another thing that happens more and more nowadays. Um, now, Gigerinzer talks about what he calls the Feynman conjecture. Um, and uh, Feynman, the, the physicist, I believe, I think it was the physicist, uh, provided an anecdote in his life when he was asked, someone had a theory about mice, you know, how mice go through a maze or something like that. And he ran statistics and found it wasn't true. But in the process, when mice were actually doing, going through a maze, he noticed, hmm, maybe it seems that they go left, then right, then left, then right, then left, then right. So I'm going to... Can you, you know, get the statistics for if they violate the left and right, left and right procedure? Now, Feynman, of course, thought it was ridiculous because, okay, you're not, you didn't actually predict that and you're not trying to prove it. You just saw it and now ex post, you're trying to get me to do statistics for it. Now, that is the same kind of thing. That is, a lot of times what happens is people will do these studies where they don't even know what they're looking for. I'm just going to plug a bunch of numbers in and see what happens. Uh, when I do, in, in fact, it's normal if I were to do some kind of experimentation, and again, for linguistics, um, I would take all this biometric data about people. And this is, I, well, I say I, but a hypothetical linguist. You know, for example, you know, their age, uh, you know, their race, their, um, 
if they're left-handed, which actually is often an important thing, uh, what's called familial sinistrality, if they have left-handed people in their family, uh, what kind of preferences they like, maybe what kind of music they like, you know, just any kind of things about them. And a lot of the reasons that people do this is because um, the nice thing, if you find no results, or even if you're not looking for results in your statistics, if you have so many variables, if you have so much dimensionality, there is going to be something that correlates with some, something else, okay? So if you take 40 different things about individual people and you run a bunch of statistics on them doing some random task, you're going to find at least one of those things correlating strongly with something else, even if that is just nonsense, okay? Even if it's just a happenstance coincidence or even, it's, even if it's not causation, causation, it's some kind of extra thing. Okay. But that is what people do a lot of the times. People a lot of the times when they are, are getting data from, uh, you know, let's say you try to make an experiment about testing for X, you actually take a bunch of biometric data or other demographic data about people and you realize, okay, the X thing doesn't work, the, there's no proof of that, but I found all these other correlations. All right? And this is a big problem. In fact, nowadays in genetics, for example, there's what uh, are called genome-wide association studies. And these are probably the worst satire of this of all time. Because what they do is they take the entire genome. How many variables in that? So many. Because there are so many different genes. And you take information about people like their age, their health status, you know, what kind of diseases they've had, what kind of physical traits they have, and you correlate all, you, you try and find correlations. And what's going to happen when you have, you know, a million different, a billion different genes, all of them that could relate in, you know, trillions of different inter interconnected ways with a bunch of different other physical characteristics is you are going to find insane correlations, insane correlations that are extremely strong and they also don't exist, or at least there's not a real cause behind them. So this is, you know, it's the curse of dimensionality. Uh, or, well, there are many curses of dimensionality, but this is one of them. That is, um, if you have all of these different variables in your model, you're going to find something that matches. And um, so anyway, this, this sort of brings to bear an article I mentioned earlier. I don't think I mentioned it by name, but this made it to the popular press a good bit, a bit away, uh, or a bit ago. Uh, this is by John uh, Ioannidis. Ioannidis, I don't know how he wants it printed. It's Greek, I assume. Um, but it's entitled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. Okay, And you can look, you can read this yourself. Again, I think this, this is actually open access. You don't need to, even have to go to Sci-Hub to get it. But just search for Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And he goes through, statistically speaking, when you have biases, like again, as I, as I mentioned a second ago, if you have the ability to constantly test, okay, uh, I've gotten some results, do these match my hypothesis, and then decide if you want to continue or not. Or, you know, when you have uh, all these different tests that you can, uh, you know, find spurious correlations with and a bunch of different other things, if you take all of those things into account, what you really find is that um, a whole bunch of the, stati uh, the statistical tests or the correlations that we found are totally nonsense, okay? There's just nothing behind them. Uh, you can check this out. There's an ensuing literature that comes from this article as well. I'm not going to talk about it quite as much. And that is where the episode originally ended. Hey, this is the Luke of 2020 again. Um, <laughs> the audio messed up after this. I stumbled around for a little bit and basically ended it. It was, it was about the place I was over with. 
but uh, there were a couple other papers I wanted to talk about. I'll just mention them. Uh, in the description, you should see a list of all the papers and stuff in the or in the comments to the audio episode. Uh, but there was one other paper I wanted to talk about in particular, and that was one that Nassim Taleb put out on, uh, well, let's see, what, what's the actual title? I, I should have pulled it up. Oh, I did. A short note on p-hacking. And basically, Taleb argued that because of the, you know, since we have all this bias in the way that people sort of put their fingers on the scale when they're trying to get positive results, when they're trying to actually do their null ritual and all that, um, in order to actually get valid statistical results we really need p-value or a standard for p-values that's you know instead of you know 0.05 really 0.005 or something like that an order of magnitude more stringent only in those circumstances would we begin to approximate the statistical level of certainty that we think that we have now uh but anyway that that was going to be how i was going to end it so i I definitely encourage you to check out the original sources. Uh, look at Gerd Gigerinzer's book, Mindless Statistics, okay? That's one of the best. It's a fantastic book, honestly. I've done two episodes based on stuff in that book. It's great. It, uh, not just this episode, but the other one uh, talking about rationality. Um, Gerd Gigerinzer is a very clear thinker, and he goes through some important issues. If you want to just start, if you want to look at issues like that, start at that book and go from there. Um, reading Nassim Taleb stuff is also pretty good, and go from Gerd Gigerinzer, find other articles if you're interested. And this is the kind of thing, especially if you're a professor or graduate student, you need to make sure that other people in academia know about this stuff, that they know what's going wrong, because there are a lot of people who, frankly, who sometimes, and it's a shame, who actually know that, uh, you know, the whole null ritual is sort of a sham and people just do it for conventions, but, you know, they, they either don't want to speak up in some kind of way, or they know in order to get published, they actually have to do it. Um, so... I, I hate to be the kind of guy who's like raise awareness about this stuff, but anyway, for normal people, I will just say question all the statistical findings you you run across uh, because a lot of them are subject to this kind of publication bias. A lot of them, and, and this episode, if you really internalize what it's about, right, this episode should sort of remind you that people who are in academia, professors, these people who are, we're supposed to rely on uh, to produce knowledge and, you know, as, as authorities and stuff like that, they are far from infallible. In fact, if anything, they fall prey to these this sort of social aspects of academia more so than other people would. Uh, the, the patterns they, that they learn as graduate students, that they learn from some textbook that misinterpreted Ronald Fisher's view on scientific induction, you know, they will run with whatever they're taught and they're ju just doing it as sort of a reflex. It's very rare that any anyone stands up and says, hey, this isn't what we're supposed to do. Anyway, that's all I had to say. Um, I will say I'm going to do another episode, of probably a not related episode. It's going to be episode zero of the second season uh, because I want to talk about uh, some changes because I want to, well, anyway, just, just watch that. Uh, just stay tuned. Be sure to watch that episode or listen to that episode. Just because I'm going to talk, I'm going to change the way that I distribute not related. I think I'm going to move away from Libsyn because you got to pay for Libsyn just a little bit. But I, I'd rather do it all on my own VPS or something like that, even if it takes up a little more my own bandwidth. I think I can manage. Anyway, that's about it. And I will see you guys next time.